Welcome to Spooky Scary Science Club, our special Halloween edition of After School Science Club. I'm Liv. And I'm Mick. And for the next month, we'll be showing you the spooky side of science. I actually wanted to kick off with something that Liv was recently telling me about. Liv, can you tell us all what you were telling me recently about the earthquake lights phenomenon? Yeah, so people might have seen in the news about a month ago that a magnitude 6.8 earthquake hit the High Atlas Mountains in Morocco. And people have been posting videos of lights lighting up the sky at the time of the earthquake. The same thing actually happened last year when a strong earthquake hit southwest Mexico and people started posting on social about like weird lights and flashes in the sky. There is some debate as to what the lights were in Mexico. Some experts argue it was a thunderstorm that was happening during the earthquake and that flashes could have obviously been lightning or the flashes on the street could have been cable lines that were wobbling because of the earthquake. But that's not always the case. Now, earthquake lights are a phenomenon that's been observed a few times, but they're just not understood very well. They happen before, during or after a major earthquake. So what are the leading scientific theories about the cause of earthquake lights? There is a theory that I found about it, but first I just want to talk about tectonic plate boundaries before I get into that theory. So there's three types of tectonic plates. There's divergent, which is when plates move away from each other. Uh, there's transform, where two plates are moving in opposite directions against each other. And then there's convergent, where plates collide. What causes earthquakes mostly is the transform plates, so where it's uh, rubbing against each other. So like when they're rubbing against each other, it's not smooth. As the plates move past each other, they can sometimes get caught and pressure builds up. And then when the plates finally slip due to the increased pressure, it then releases energy in the form of seismic waves, which then causes an earthquake. The San Andreas Fault is actually, I think, one of the most famous transform boundaries. So the earthquake lights theory that I found is this thing called fractomechanoluminescence, which is a type of light produced when certain materials are under um, a lot of pressure, they're broken or they're fractured. So as I said, during an earthquake, these tectonic plates rub against each other. This then puts the Earth's crust under a lot of pressure, which can cause the rocks within the Earth's crust to break or fracture. And then when they break, they release energy in the form of light, which is this fractomechanoluminescence. The lights emitted can actually appear as floating balls, as flashes, as lights dancing across the sky, and sometimes flames. So that's one of the leading theories, I would say, behind the earthquake lights. But as I said, it's still not fully understood yet what the exact mechanisms are. But they do hope that once the lights can be more understood, maybe they could be used to predict strong earthquakes before they happen. I have heard the theory that you proposed, and I've heard that there are a couple of things that can change the likelihood of earthquake lights. Uh, for instance, the type of rock, because some rocks essentially have more chemical bonds that will be likely to release this type of energy when stressed. And another one is sort of the disruption that it causes to the Earth's magnetic field or to the ionosphere. And another one is the angle of the fault. So the type of stress that's created when it they rub against each other, all sorts of things. It's really interesting. But it does seem to be that the more vertical the fault itself is, the more likely it is to cause earthquake lights. Of course, the human mind is always curious. And 
there have been alternative proposals. Some people have even suggested that earthquake lights might be caused by UFOs. I feel like with the alien sighting things, they've gone back so far. I, I think people could mistake them for alien lights, but also there have been plenty of quote-unquote sightings of strange lights in the sky, even outside of any earthquakes nearby. I think part of what you're suggesting is just humans' deep anthropological need to find an explanation for things that happen in their environment. So if you happen to be an ancient human who is living through an earthquake or a volcano or another similar geological natural disaster, you're inclined to look for explanations. And with your rudimentary scientific knowledge, you're likely to go for gods, aliens, that sort of thing, aren't you? I think if people are looking on and seeing something that they don't understand, like scientists might look at it and be like, oh, I know exactly what that is. But if I saw that, I would genuinely think the end of the world is coming. <laughs> and there's also the simple fact that humans don't want to be alone in the universe. We're designed as a communal species, so we're not comfortable with solitude. And that extends out, as we discussed in an earlier episode, to the rest of the universe as well. We want to believe. Yeah, I was actually watching um, an interview on Star Talk, uh, which is Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast, The Astrophysicist. And he was saying that we don't want to be alone in the universe, but also if we, I'm going to butcher this, but he basically said something along the lines of if we are alone in the universe, that it's sort of a bit meaningless. And I think that's what gave rise to what's called the Copernican principle, which basically just tells humanity that in short, we're not special. Our observations are the same as anyone else's anywhere else in the universe and there's nothing about earth about our solar system about us as a species that should say that we're alone which is sort of at the intersection of early science when humans were just beginning to grasp that earth was not in fact the center of the universe or even the center of its own solar system and that deep human desire not to be alone that said the likelihood of humans being alone in the universe is mathematically low, but there still hasn't been any conclusive evidence that that's not the case. And that's when we get into one of my favorite concepts, which is the Fermi paradox and why it exists. So the Fermi paradox is called a paradox because the intersection between the high likelihood that we're not alone in the universe and the total lack of evidence that we're not alone in the universe doesn't make sense. So where is everybody? And I actually use that phrase because that's what gave rise to the Fermi paradox, a conversation that Enrico Fermi, the physicist, was having with some colleagues where they were talking about recent claims of UFO sightings, uh, space travel, all sorts of things. And... Fermi kept thinking about this after the conversation moved on and just went, well, where is everybody? That's a claimed quote, not necessarily an exact quote, 
but it makes perfect sense. There are billions of stars in the universe, so there are billions and billions of planets. Many of those planets will be in the same sort of habitable zone distance from the sun as our planet. Many of those stars are older than our planet. Many of those planets are likely to have, for instance, water and chemicals in composition similar to Earth. So how is it possible that there isn't anyone else out there? And if there is someone else out there, how is it possible we haven't found them? And there are lots and lots of ways people have come up with to explain this paradox. Some are logical, you know, like maybe they're too far away to have made it here yet, or maybe they haven't evolved that far past us technologically and so can't reach us yet, that sort of thing. Some of them are logical in a higher level sense, like that maybe they are, you know, right out there. They are technically detectable to us, but they're so alien that we don't even know how we would detect them or what would signify their existence. And some of them are quite terrifying, like the great filter hypothesis, which suggests that essentially when you reach a certain point, you're arrested from going any further. And that could be a point that humanity has somehow missed. For instance, the great filter could be that life never arises on the planet or that it never makes it past a single-celled life form or that it never reaches sentience. Or the great filter could be something that's coming up, which I think is the spookiest, scariest side of it. What happened to everyone else when they reached a certain point in our future that's also potentially coming for us? Right, so it's the they may have already reached that point and the reason why we're not finding them is because something's happened to them which could one day be like could be our future fate that's the principle the principle being that if the great filter is at a point ahead of our development that there's no reason it wouldn't happen to us as well whatever it may be i mean humans are literally killing their own planet so i truly wouldn't be surprised if <laughs> if that is the great filter coming for us but i think that Absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. And I understand why people may not think that there is intelligent life in another galaxy, in a solar system, whatever. But personally, I think there's too much out there. Like, if you think about how much of the ocean we've explored, and we've still not explored that much of it, compare that to the amount of space that we've explored, I don't think that it necessarily means that there isn't life out there. And scientists have found habitable planets or planets that are, are more Earth-like in a different solar system. The two that I found were Kepler-186f and Kepler-452b, which are very catchy names. To make a planet habitable and sustain life, it needs to have water, energy and, and nutrients, or liquid water, I should say. A planet is going around a star and for it to be habitable, it needs to be in this particular zone where it gets the right amount of heat to maintain uh, liquid water on its surface. But we have found life in space, right? We have found microbial life on other planets. We have found evidence suggestive of potential microbial life on other planets, but I don't think you could go so far as to say that we have found microbial life. 
right see i think wanting to believe we're not alone so badly can actually lead us to see things and misinterpret things that aren't actually there uh, which actually gives way to this psychological phenomenon called expectant attention and that happens when you're expecting to see something or you want to see it so badly you're then sort of more likely to misinterpret what you're seeing as that very thing um and it's kind of i would say underpins some of the the other supernatural sightings and phenomena that goes on in the world like the loch ness monster my favorite good old nessie people have wanted to find the loch ness monster for decades well actually centuries the first sighting itself was actually back in how do you say like 565 565 ad and then between the 1500s and the 1800s there were about I think about 20 sightings by locals, but the first recorded sighting uh, was in 1888 when this man said he saw this large stubby-legged animal coming out of the lock and it launched itself onto shore near where he stood. But the the sighting sort of started to, to get a lot more in the 1900s. And to date, there's actually been over a thousand recorded sightings of, of Nessie. So you're saying that this phenomenon of expectant attention means that people love the idea of the Loch Ness Monster or cryptozoology generally so much that they might see a Nessie that isn't actually there? I myself would like to believe Nessie exists because my mum and all my family, they're all Glaswegian, they're Scottish. So for me, I would very much like to believe that that Nessie is real but there has been research into it of what it could be because you could be seeing anything on the water and then just sort of going oh that you know there's something popping out of the water that's that's Nessie and that's how as well fake photos come about and the the most famous one which I actually didn't realize was fake was the surgeon's photo which a lot of people I feel like the world at this point has obviously seen and it's like a black and white grainy photo of this long neck and small head protruding out of the water. And the photo came about in 1934 by a surgeon called Colonel Robert Wilson, but he didn't want to be credited for the photo. So it became known as the surgeon's photo. But in 1994, that's when the photograph was revealed as a hoax. Uh, It was actually a toy submarine fitted with a sea serpent's head. It was a man named Christian Sperling who came forward about it being a hoax because he was involved with it. He said he created the serpent model for a man named Marmaduke Weatherall, who had previously had one of his Nessie discoveries refuted and was so embarrassed by that that he then paid Christian Sperling to create this hoax. And then Christian Sperling gave it to Colonel Wilson to distribute and take the credit for. So it was basically just a revenge plot. I feel like scientific malfeasance has come a long way from there to sophisticated photoshopping of result images in peer-reviewed publications. This photo was actually cropped as well. Like if you look at the original photo, you can see a wider view of the lock and then it's this like tiny little thing coming out of the water, but they cropped it so it would look a lot bigger compared with like the scale of of the photo. One of my favorite examples of expectant attention in the context of the Loch Ness Monster 
is in the recent hunt. So back in August, they had a two-day Nessie hunt, and it was supposed to be the largest one that had ever happened. And they had people who were professionals, and they had the public joining in and all sorts. And one person reported seeing essentially a perfect outline of an image that was shaped like Nessie at the bottom of the lock. And what it turned out is that um, some filmmakers had previously made a movie about Nessie. And when they finished making their film, they'd sunk their Nessie model to the bottom of the lock. And that's what he found. That's so wild because Loch Ness is a very deep lock. Loch Ness is actually the second deepest lake in the whole of the UK. Loch Marar is the first one, which is good pub quiz knowledge. But whereabouts in the lock did they sink it? Did they sink it all the way down to the bottom? I admit I have no idea. What I've just said is exactly as much as I know about the whole thing. They also apparently heard four mysterious and previously unheard loud noises from the depths of the lock. And that was a quote that one of the volunteers said. And they also picked up a giant shadow. But when they went to the recorder to make sure they recorded the popping sounds, I think it was, it turns out the recorder wasn't switched on. And this is how so many discoveries are lost in science. Yeah, but it means the mystery lives on, right? There has been so many investigations of Loch Ness, obviously because of this mystery surrounding it. There's been a lot of sonar searches by the Loch Ness Project. The biggest one, or one of the biggest one, I believe, was um, Operation Deep Scan, which was in the 80s. And they sent out a load of boats to line up side by side and sort of slowly sail across the loch, all lined up next to each other. They did find strong sonar signals that couldn't be explained. But, you know, there's all they they I think they said about it could be underwater waves, it could be uh, I think they said seals coming in from the sea. I think too, in addition to this very human desire to want the mystery to remain alive or to want to find something that we didn't previously know about to believe that these things still survive. We do occasionally see hard, provable science add fuel to the fire. For instance, we do every so often discover a creature that we thought was extinct and is in fact alive and well in our waters. The most famous example, of course, being the coelacanth, but not the only one. And I think when people realize that Things that were alive in the time of the dinosaurs are still alive today. It gives them hope that maybe we'll find other such things and maybe we'll find these cryptid creatures. Maybe we'll find dinosaurs alive in some jungle somewhere. It would be wildly improbable for that to happen, especially at this stage. It's very difficult to have megafauna, large animals that we haven't yet been able to find, but the deep water is very much an exception to that rule. So who knows what we'll find? Plenty of people have hypothesized that the Loch Ness monster may be some sort of leftover plesiosaur type creature from the age of the dinosaurs. So who knows? Maybe there are still mysteries to be found. Perhaps, but they also analyzed eDNA, which is DNA shed by organisms into their environment. They've previously done a study analyzing that DNA in the loch. 
and they managed to get some more information about the creatures living there but they did actually or they said they ruled out the existence of any prehistoric animal living there um as you said people believed it could have been a plesiosaur but in the analysis they didn't actually find any evidence for reptiles uh in their data and also nothing where a plesiosaur's dna sequence may be today which correct me if i'm wrong would be like between a bird and a crocodile it's a bit difficult to say but you're right that so far there is no evidence I'm just trying to keep the hope alive for you. Please do, thank you. To be fair, they did find, and I found this quite a funny conclusion, I don't know why, but they did find a lot of eel DNA at almost every part of the lock that they sampled, which led them to suggest that Nessie actually might just be a giant eel. Um, But just because there is a lot of eel DNA doesn't necessarily confirm that potential Nessie is a giant eel. It just means that there's lots of eels living in the lock. So... Take note if you happen to be a fan of barbecued eel sushi or possibly jellied eels. I don't know how you could be. Yeah, that's the place to that's the place to get them. But I'm hopeful. I think it's actually quite nice that they didn't find anything because personally, I think that's what keeps the mystery going, and I think that's what keeps people interested. And look, if there is a Nessie, she just doesn't want to be found. If she wants to be found, she'll be found. And if she doesn't, she's gonna stay hidden. And frankly, I think this is actually, despite its seeming spuriousness, a wonderful thing for science. Because I think that people's desire to find Nessie, their desire to learn about aliens, their desire to analyze the potential reality of monsters, is what gets people interested in science and keeps the discipline going. So if you're a monster fan, or if you're an alien believer, keep going. And actually, if you are a fan of monsters, aliens, and all things horror, then make sure to tune into our episode next week when we talk to expert John Greenaway about horror films and the science of fear. Hope to see you there. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, or both. Thank you for listening to After School Science Club, hosted by Liv Gaskell and Mick Schubert, with music by Sam Watts. I'm Liv, and you can find me on Instagram at sciencewithliv. And I'm Mick, and you can find me at mickschubert.com, as well as a variety of other places. You can also email us at scyclubpodcast at gmail.com. That's S-C-I club podcast at gmail.com. So get in touch if you have any burning questions or if you want to suggest a cool topic for us to discuss in a future episode. Thanks, and we'll see you next episode.